I have to tell you about a podcast I listen to that gets me rubbed up every time I hear it. It's all about women rising up, called Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. On Inflection Point, you'll hear powerful stories from women leading change and taking charge. You'll come away inspired with expert advice and tools for how to act on issues that matter to you at home, at work, and in the world. Every conversation with Lauren gives us hope, makes us laugh, and teaches us something new about how to create the world we want to live in. Believe me, I've been on her show, and Lauren not only makes it fun to talk about the tough stuff, she wastes no time getting to the heart of the matter. To hear how women rise up, go to Apple Podcasts or the app you're listening on right now and subscribe to Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. Hi, it's Rashma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show about breaking away from the cult of perfection to live bolder, happier lives. Today, mentorship is on my mind and how the bravest of us aren't just making space for ourselves, we're making space for others too. That way, the ladder behind us gets easier to climb. But it's not just about making space. It's about actively lifting others up. For this show, I'm talking to one of my own mentors, someone who lifts me up. She inspires me to reach higher, dream bigger, and live braver. And she's a trailblazer who's made so much more space in the world for women to thrive. I think running for president was my most audacious action. Um, you know, I did it twice and it was audacious uh, both times. Yep, former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. I feel so blessed to call this incredible woman a friend and a mentor. The conversation you're about to hear is part of the Girls Who Code Summer Speaker Series, and I'm thrilled to share it with you now. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? Uh, I am so honored today to have with us Secretary Clinton. Um, for me today, it's almost like the, my two favorite people meeting, right? Hillary, the Girls Who Code community and Hillary Clinton meeting together. Um, Pretty much my entire adult life, I have admired, I have followed you, I have learned from you, I have leaned on you. Every time, pretty much since I was 19 years old, people would ask me, who's the person you admire the most? The word has been Hillary Clinton, and it still is Hillary Clinton. So it is an honor to have you with us today. And today is all about inspiration. So we have 5,000 girls from across the country that are part of this Girls Who Code Summer Immersion Program. We are in probably the toughest time in our nation's history, where I think young people everywhere are asking them, like, what can I do? And I'm going to send you, uh, after this, some of the incredible apps that the young women are building to support Black Lives Matter and climate change, and you're going to be blown away. But today, I want them to learn from you the way that I have learned from you over the past 20 years. So here we go. We are pretty much seeing in real time what young people are capable of, right? Black Lives Matter, climate change, gender inequity, uh, March for Our Lives. And pretty much your entire life, you have been encouraging young people to step up and to step out and to fight for progress. And I wanted to ask you, what have been some of the most inspiring developments that you have seen from this youth activism that we're seeing? Well... First, Reshma, thank you so much for asking me to be part of this today. And 
I'm the one who gets inspired. I get inspired by what you have built and the incredible team that you've put together uh, and all of the girls and young women who have been part of Girls Who Code. It's just astonishing uh, what a difference it has made, not only in individual lives, but more broadly um, in our country to uh, create these opportunities and provide them um, oftentimes to girls who didn't know about it before or didn't think that they would be uh, particularly um, interested or good at it. So that's inspirational because I can start by saying what inspires me are people who come together uh, to uh, look at a problem and then work and it sometimes is hard work and sometimes takes a long time, but they're persistent in coming up with uh, solutions to the problems they see. Girls Who Code is an example of that. And right now throughout our country, we have seen literally millions of people, predominantly young people of every background, uh, race, creed, ethnicity, you can just list them all who have been in the streets of our cities and our towns uh, speaking out on behalf of the causes and problems that they want to be part of solving. So as you rightly say, dealing with systemic racism, something that has plagued our nation from its very beginning and even before, uh, it takes a new generation every 30 to 40 years to come and say, okay, you know, the civil rights movement, Dr. King and others brought us this far, but we are still not where we need to be. So now we've got to tackle the problems that we see in our time. And we're going to not just be in the streets, not just be online. We're going to be organizing and voting along with protesting. I also see that when it comes to climate change. You know, young people, we know some of their names like Greta Thunberg, but there are literally millions more from very young children to um, the oldest among us who know that this is a crisis that is going to affect everyone. And so they are speaking out and they are demanding change. And again, it's not just the protest, it's what we do with that energy that is generated by protest. And certainly, you know, persistent sexism and misogyny, the continuing uh, backlash against women going as far as their hard work and dreams will take them. Uh, we need to be as vigilant as ever in this 100th year of the 19th Amendment that gave American women the right to vote about how hard that struggle was and to continue to speak out and to organize in order to move the agenda for women's full participation and for their fair allocation of power uh, within every system, economic and political and cultural that there is. And then finally, you know, you could really mention so many of these issues that are critically uh, important to our future, but particularly for young people's future. The way that young people organized around gun violence, uh, the March for Our Lives and other uh, organizing has meant that many uh, 
elected officials for the first time have to take the issue of gun violence seriously. They have to be held accountable and young people are part of the social movement to try to make that happen. So I'm inspired by so many of the young people I work with, that I employ, that I support uh, through my organization on We're Together that you're a board member of, where we support a lot of the young activists who are recruiting people to run for office, who are standing up against uh, hate online, who are in the trenches every day trying to make what is a protest against injustice and wrongdoing into change, real, live, lasting change. And that's what you know gets me up every day and that's what continues to inspire me. Yeah, I'm so proud to be on the board of Onward Together. I was just so moved when we got all the leaders on that call and they one by one talked about the change that they're making in this country. It gave me hope, you know, and yeah. for the first time it gave me so much hope. One of the, I think one of the important traits that you have to have to be an activist is resiliency. And it's not easy being the first. And you know that, right? You were the first woman to be the presidential nominee for a major political party, in my mind, the first female president. And you were the first, you know, you were secretary of state. I mean, list after list, after, you've been the first. And you've been encouraging young women to break barriers. And it's not easy because it's not easy being the only one, being the first person to break something down. So many of the young women who are listening today, they're the only girl in their, in their computer science class or the only girl you know, uh, in their town who has access to learning this, where so many people tell them that it's not for you, that this is a subject for boys. What advice do you have for them to continue to build resiliency and break down barriers? I know exactly um, what you're talking about because I hear it all the time. Uh, even though here we are in the year 2020, um, there are still uh, a lot of, um, you know, internal uh, biases and obstacles to women feeling that they can go as far as their hard work and talent will take them. And we have, you know, we've, we've knocked down a lot of the laws that used to stand in the way. I mean, when I was a young girl, I, there were schools I couldn't go to, jobs I couldn't apply for, scholarships I wasn't eligible for, all kinds of things that were literally in the law. Well, we've eliminated much of that, but here's what remains. What remains are cultural bias, social norms that whisper in your ear or sometimes yell in your face, you don't belong here. You know, this is for boys. We don't need you. Um, and that can be an incredibly lonely experience. That's why Girls Who Code is important because you need to feel that you're part of a community. Uh, if you are the only girl in your computer uh, class, you are the only girl in your town who's doing something different that is interesting to you, but you're the only one who chose to follow it. You've got to either create or find a community to support you because it can be incredibly difficult uh, to keep going. You also have to believe in yourself, you know, not in an arrogant way, but kind of matter of fact, like, look, if I work at something, I'm going to get better at it. You know, I'm going to keep improving, but I'm, I can't get discouraged. I can't give up. I have to keep going. And that takes a certain internal uh, resolve. And I know that some people under 
so many circumstances face almost unimaginable barriers, uh, difficulties in their families, problems and challenges in their community, even their countries that make it hard for them to get the education that they want or to have the choices they are looking for. Just don't give up. Don't give in. You're better than sometimes you even think you yourself are. And having been in the public arena as a young girl, as a young adult, as an older woman, I know that there are lots of people who will criticize you and try to undermine your confidence. And one of my favorite Americans, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, famously said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Do not give them your consent. Stand up for yourself. Look for ways that you can prove uh, first and foremost to yourself, but then to the others around you uh, that you have a right. You have a right to be doing what you're doing. Who You have a right to be who you are. Uh, and you have a right to pursue uh, your own uh, future. I love that. I was um, recently re-watching the Hulu documentary about On Your Life. And one of my favorite parts in that documentary is when you're giving the commencement speech. And there you are, uh, this room full of powerful people, and you hear Senator Brooke give his speech. And you're not happy with what he's saying. And you have your prepared remarks. And you put them aside and you decide to have the bravery to tell your truth and tell the truth of your generation. What did that feel like? I mean, were you afraid? And how (laughs) did you learn how to be brave like that? Well, it was a, yeah, it was an unprecedented experience. You know, the, I was graduating from Wellesley College. No graduate had ever spoken at graduation. Actually, my classmates, uh, demanded that the president of the college let somebody speak. And then they asked me to speak. So there was no precedent. I had no idea um, how to do what I was about to undertake. And you're right. um, This was, you know, 1969. Just like today, we had gone through some very, very hard times in our country. Dr. King first, and then Bobby Kennedy second had been assassinated Uh, The war in Vietnam was getting bigger and bigger and more and more young men were being uh, drafted and sent to Vietnam. Uh, We had a president who um, was flouting the rule of law, as we later learned. So there was so much uh, just anxiety, electricity in the air about what we were facing as we were leaving college. And our speaker, Senator Brooke, um, you know, gave a classic graduation speech, but it was also somewhat of a, you know, pat on the head speech. Like, there, there, all you young women, don't worry, you know, don't worry about the world. You know, we've got it all in hand and go off and basically, you know, live your lives, get married, have children. Don't worry about it. And I just couldn't let it go Uh, unaddressed because that's not how I and my classmates felt. We felt a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen in our uh, own lives and in our country and the world. So I did um, speak out and, and, you know, pretty much 
you know, basically said, look, that's, that's not good enough. We're not, we're not ready to be patted on the head and say, be nice girls. And, and uh, that will be fine. Let somebody else worry about the world. You know, we're educated, we're ready to take our place in the world. And um, that's what we expect. So it was a, it was a quite, um, uh, you know, freighted, as they say, freighted moment of lots of, uh, of energy and expectation. Yeah, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but the health crisis has been horrible for women and people of color. And I think women are feeling so much pressure to uh, show up perfectly at work, to homeschool their kids, to, as I am, do laundry and puree baby food in between you know, my Zoom calls with Secretary Clinton, right? It is just so much. And one of the things I've admired about you and your career, I always say Hillary taught me, Hillary Clinton taught me how to dust off my pantsuit and keep going because people will always criticize you and you will always be to this, to that, to this, to that. And like, you have to find yourself. And how did you, you know, how do you get over that pressure to be perfect? How do you find your authenticity? How do you finally just throw up your hands and say, you know what, I'm just going to do me. You know, it's a really important set of questions, and uh, I want to sort of break it down and 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 try to talk about each aspect of that. Um, you know, I do think a lot of young women are afflicted by what I call the perfectionist gene. You know, if we can't be perfect, you know, we feel like we have failed. Whereas young men are much less bothered by perfection. They think that they are perfect and they feel like they can just go out in the world and show everybody, right? I often say that I've, I've employed many people over the course of my careers now. And if I say to a young woman, um, I'd like to promote you, I'd like to take on some additional responsibility, almost invariably, she'll say, do you think I can? Yeah. And I say, well, obviously I think you can because I'm asking you to. Whereas if I say it to the young men that I employ, it's like, well, what took you so long? Of course yeah. I can. So you've got to get over the fear of failure and you've got to get over this perfectionism that haunts us and holds us back. And you also have to be aware that criticism sometimes can teach you something that your friends either can't or won't. But be wary of it. I like to say, take criticism seriously, but not personally. And by that, I mean, learn from it. You know, I mean, I've, I've been in public life. I've run for office. I've been secretary of state. Obviously, I ran for president. And sometimes, you know, the critics are right, as much as you hate to admit it. You know, you could have been, you know, better on this point or you could have handled this problem better. So learn from it. But don't let it knock you down and keep you down. Don't let it send you to bed and have you pull the covers over your head. You have to constantly be saying to yourself, when you are criticized, is this worth responding to and thinking about? Or is this coming because, frankly, somebody's jealous? Somebody didn't get the job that you got. Somebody is just in a bad mood. Somebody wants to tear you down. You know, those are not good reasons for you to spend one second worrying about what somebody has criticized you for. And as you go through both jobs and life, you just have to develop a tougher skin. Going back to my my favorite American, one of my favorite Americans, Eleanor Roosevelt, 
Uh, she said two things that I want you to think about. One, if you're in the public arena, you have to grow th skin as thick as the hide of a rhinoceros. And the second, which maybe you've seen on a, on a cup somewhere, is you never know how strong a woman is because she's like a tea bag. You have to see what she does when she's in hot water. So think about how you almost get ready for criticism and for setbacks. Almost, you know, play it in your head. Say, well, you know, suppose I, I put the, I do this big presentation and somebody criticizes me. I got to be ready for that. And I've got to know my stuff and I've got to be able to say, well, I hear what you're saying, but here's what I think is is meant by that or here's what I was trying to do with that. So almost run through in your own mind how you can be prepared for whatever comes at you uh, in the professional or public world. You know, we talked about this a couple of months ago. But I want to get your take on it because you're literally one of the smartest people I know. A lot, one setback that is coming up for a lot of young people is they're either not going back to college in the fall or school next year, high school is going to look very different for them. How would you like schools to reopen in the fall? And if we continue with remote education, which it seems like we are, how do we ensure that it's equitable, right? And that we don't have kids getting Wi-Fi and Burger King parking lots or have taken care you know, of their siblings and our essential workers and that we're just holding them back and they're not thriving, they're just surviving. You know, Reshma, you said earlier how this pandemic has impacted girls and women, and it is absolutely the case, not only in this country, but elsewhere in the world. You know, most of the frontline healthcare workers are women. Most of the frontline so-called essential workers in grocery stores, pharmacies, all kinds of places that have been kept open because they had services that needed to be delivered are women. You have the whole dilemma of education because most of the education task force is women. So how do we reopen schools safely? Here's what I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to learn from countries that have gone ahead and done it. You know, some have had more success than others. Uh, from what I've learned, Denmark has been able to figure out how to do it. Israel just said that they had opened schools and there had been big outbreaks of the virus. So they're having to rethink how they do it. So I think opening schools and getting back to conventional education with kids in a classroom with a teacher is going to be very difficult. Um, it, that, that's not to say it can't be done, but Everybody has to study and learn all the lessons from everywhere else and apply them here and then to be constantly vigilant. Um, but think about what this is going to mean for working moms, because if schools don't open and daycare doesn't open, how do working moms go back to work? If school opens, but children are put into shifts, so some go in the morning, some go in the afternoon, how do you go back to work? If you're a teacher as well as a mom, how do you feel comfortable in the classroom um, if you don't feel like every precaution has been taken? So I am waiting and watching this really carefully. I have three grandchildren, you know, two are, one is preschool age, one is elementary school age. I don't know what to even 
think about for my own grandkids about what's safe and what works. But then you have the whole other element. Okay, suppose in many places in the country, conventional schooling is just not possible. We have so much inequity in online education. We're just not being fair to millions of children who don't have reliable uh, internet access, who don't have appropriate equipment or not enough within a family, you know, maybe one device, but not three or four. And, and we also know that online learning is not equivalent to in-person learning. So I, I think, and maybe Girls Who Code and all of you could be thinking about how do we do this? And if we do have to go back to online, how do we get more access for everybody? And how do we make the education that comes across the screen more engaging, uh, with more learning potential, you know, keeping the attention of students and of teachers. These are big unanswered questions. So I'm, I'm actually going to look to people like you to help us figure out how we're going to do this. Well, in this summer, I think we're testing out a lot of things that we're going to share with the community. And we've designed it to, you know, to teach the most uh, vulnerable girls, you know, the ones that, quite frankly, many communities are counting out. And I think if you always do, and I think I've learned that a lot from you, if you always go towards who needs you the most and you design for them, then you can design for everybody. And then you have to take care of everybody. That's exactly right. You leave nobody out. You leave nobody behind. I want to get to some of our questions from our young women because they're awesome. So first question from Victoria. Uh, What is the most audacious action that you've taken in your career? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I. Running for president, I think. I, I think running for president was my most audacious action. Um, you know, I did it twice, and it was audacious uh, both times. Um, you know, it 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 is um, for me uh, my hope that we will someday, within my lifetime, have a woman president. Um, but when I did it. Um, you know, there was no template. And when people would say to me, well, you either, you know, need to act more like male candidates, or you need to carve out a whole new uh, realm for women candidates, I would say, well, point to somebody that I can look at to model from. And of course, it was very difficult. So I think in my public life, that that, that was the most audacious decision that I ever made. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting because now that we've had so many qualified women run again for president and still didn't have a woman at the top of the ticket, I think we've learned a lot about how much work we still have left to do when it comes to gender and to race. Um, Victoria also asked, how can a young woman of color, female of color, overcome systematic injustices and prejudices when pursuing a career like tech where women are marginalized and people of color are marginalized? First of all, pursue the career. You know, it, it's like what I just said about running for president. Just because others haven't doesn't mean you shouldn't. And you can be both a trailblazer and uh, a successful professional. Um, but you have to go in with your eyes open. I went in with my eyes open that, you know, no woman of any color had ever been the nominee of a major party. 
and that I was just going to be held to a double standard. That was just the reality. But um, I also tried to come up with techniques and, you know, little tricks uh, to keep me going and to be surrounded by people who I could count on to help me. So that's that's the best advice that I can give you. What was the, what was the technique or trick? You know, to be as ready as you possibly can, to be as prepared as you possibly can. Do not, uh, you know, take anything or anybody for granted. And just know that you're going to have to work doubly, triply hard, uh, but you can do it. And that's, you know, what I hope you will do. So another question from Audrey, you've had a lot of jobs in your life. What has been the, your favorite job that you've had? Uh, I, <laughs> I'm pointing at something for one of my, my kids, my grandkids. I'm trying to get them to, you know, wait till I finish. Listen, my kids are about to interrupt this call in one second too. I've just locked myself in this room. Uh, what, you know, I've had a lot of really favorite jobs. Um, when I worked for the Children's Defense Fund, that was a favorite job. I loved working for my mentor, Marion Wright Edelman, who is just the most extraordinary leader. Um, I also loved uh, when I practiced law and I defended children. Um, I always felt like I was, you know, going to court or going into a meeting armored on behalf of uh, a child who otherwise would not have been represented. You know, look, everything I've done, um, and certainly I loved being a senator from New York because I loved finding ways to help people. And I love being Secretary of State because it was an honor to represent our country uh, while, uh, you know, Barack Obama was president. That's great. So question from Molly, what is the most significant thing you've learned during this pandemic? How incredibly important it is to listen to science, to listen to the experts who know what this pandemic was going to do. It is heartbreaking to me that we've had people ignore science and in fact, it has set us back. It was always going to be difficult, but the fact that we've had people who, you know, get in fights over wearing masks or keeping socially distant or trying to protect, you know, the vulnerable among us is just astonishing to me. I can't even imagine it. Um, so, I've always believed in science. I've always believed that, you know, people who study things may not be right, but they deserve to be listened to. And that's why you need a good education so you can try to make up your own mind. But this wholesale disregard of science um, has set us back. And it's just reinforced for me how important it is that we make evidence-based decisions in our own lives and in our politics. Yeah. It's also showed how important leadership is. Right? Oh, totally. And so totally. much of what the politicization of mask wearing is because of our leaders. Yeah. I mean, a leader should model good behavior. And yeah. I just want to end with this, Reshma, because it's important. Uh, and it's an important point that maybe um, all your 5,000 Girls Who Code watchers can remember there's been some really good studies that show countries with women leaders have actually done better in the pandemic. Uh, leaders from New Zealand to Taiwan to Germany to Finland, because they did listen to science, they modeled good behavior, they had inclusive leadership, uh, they were 
communicating uh, honestly with their uh, citizens, and they made tough decisions, and the results speak for themselves. So true. I'm going to ask you one last question, then we're going to let you go. So from Sasha, if you could give one piece of advice to yourself 25 years ago, what would you say to young Hillary Clinton? I, I would have to do it longer than 25 years ago because I wasn't all that young 25 years ago. But if I were talking to my younger self, I would say, you never know what's going to happen in life. Be prepared. Uh, you've gotten a good education, but keep building on it. Learn from others. Expose yourself to different experiences and different people Stay true to your values and try to lead a brave and kind life. That's what I would say. Hmm, I love that. All right. Last, last question. I promise. Okay. So right. All of our girls are in their program right now. And in the last week, they can build anything. They can solve any problem. And it's a way of encouraging our girls who already are activists. Uh, for example, one, uh, two of our girls built a game called Tampon Run to educate people on the menstruation taboo because most games are shooter games. But as you know, so many young women around the world get their period and they drop out of school. Right. And so it was using a game to kind of educate. What's one app you would create? Wow. I don't even know if you could do this, but you know, <laughs> to encourage people to be kinder to one another, to treat each other as you want to be treated. I'd call it the golden rule app. Um, and it would, uh, you know, reflect what is in every common global religion, you know, treat others as you want to be treated, be kind. Uh, it, it, as the older I get, it seems more and more important to remind ourselves, none of us is in this alone. Uh, I wrote a book called It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. I believe that more now than even then. Um, so how do we encourage kindness? You know, random acts of kindness, deliberate acts of kindness. Uh, let's design an app to do that. Yeah, I love that. And it's such a, you know, to close, you have been more than any woman I know exemplified sisterhood. You know, we always ask, you know, why don't women lift each other up? Why don't women help encourage each other? And you've just been a testament to that. There are so many Reshma Sajanis out there who have known you since we were 18 and you've supported our runs for office or our nonprofits or, you know, mentioned us or made an introduction or we're there to give a hug and like, you know, a helping hand. And you don't have to do that. And quite frankly, so many, so many people don't. And so there on behalf of the entire sisterhood, I'm just expressing so much gratitude and love to you. And you live your life with the values that you espouse with kindness and humility and authenticity and I've learned so much from you and so have the girls. So thank you so much. And we are so grateful for you. Thank you, my friend. Lift each other up and uh, keep going. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Hillary Rodham Clinton, who I am thankful to have as one of my mentors. Thank you to all the students from our program who tuned in and for your thoughtful questions. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. Today's episode was also made possible by my co-producers, Tanya Zaparonic and Charlotte Stone. And of course, our fearless team leader, Deborah Singer. 
Andrea Jordan, Reshma Sajani, Olivia Quintana, Ashley Gramby, Gloria Noel, Aaron Page, Zenzele Skylark, Elisa Dwyer, and Raven Abreu also contributed to the making of this episode. See you in two weeks. <laughs>